grab a seat and uh, if you again could just turn to Genesis chapter 12. Some of what I'm going to share this evening, I'm going to share it in two parts. It's going to sound familiar because this time last year, we actually spent as a church eight Sunday mornings looking at the life of Abraham under the title of a series called Journey into the Unknown. So for some people here, I recognize there's going to be a sense of deja vu, uh, but I hope it, it sort of serves as a bit of a reminder to what we looked at last year. The the narrative there in in Genesis 12 begins with these four words. Now, the Lord said, and in so many ways, that is such a relief to discover that God still wants to communicate. That God actually still wants to relate to his creation. That God hasn't chosen to turn his back and walk away, even though he had every right to do it. Because events to date haven't been that good. I mean, creation was good. It was very, very good. But it wasn't that long before sins unwelcomed and uncalled for intrusion into God's perfect world changed everything. It created dysfunction, tension, division. And the result of that was that God's judgment had to fall. And we've discovered that it has already fallen three times. And so the first humans decided to do it their own way. And they chose to listen to a lying snake instead of a loving God. And as a result, the first humans ended up reaping the consequences of their choice. And were sent outside of the garden. Judgment number one. And then humanity reached such a low point as a result of their wickedness and as a result of their messed up hearts that God had to virtually wipe them out via a great flood. Eight survived or eight were rescued. Judgment number two. And then, as we thought about this morning, God had to scatter a bunch of very self-centered, arrogant and proud people. And he had to scatter them in a state of total confusion. Judgment number three. And in so many ways it would have been perfectly understandable for God to just draw a line in the sand and to end all dialogue. Perfectly understandable. And yet, I hope you join me in thanking God for those first four words of Genesis chapter 12 because what those four words reveal is a God who still wants relationship. A God who hasn't chosen to walk away despite the reality of our waywardness. But the question is, why Abram? Because it says there in that first verse, now the Lord said to Abram, well the text doesn't tell us. But according to the end of Genesis 11 and the start of 12 and info from a few other places, we can quickly build up a bit of a profile of this man. His dad was called Terah. His wife, Sarah, he was aged 75 when God spoke to him. He had no kids. Previous address, Ur, which means city. A heavily populated center of commerce and manufacturing, apparently. A very religious, very idolatrous place. Polytheism was alive and well. In other words, people worshipped lots and lots of gods. In fact, it's recorded there's more than 300 gods in this city were recognized and worshipped and adored. 
And according to Joshua's farewell speech that we looked at 18 months ago as a church, Abram's dad, Terah, worshipped many of these gods. And so when you take all that into consideration, it's probably worth making the point that Abram wasn't exactly raised in a very positive God-fearing environment. But even so, God speaks into his life. Because you see, God is not restricted by cultural context or family background. God speaks into the lives of those he chooses to speak into. And at some point, Abram's dad decided to uproot the city-dwelling family and head for Canaan. But en route, they came to a place called Haran, which means crossroads. And according to Genesis 11.31, they as a family opted to settle there. And so it was in this place, this place called Haran, that God then spoke to Abram. And this is what he said. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And the command is right up front. It's to go. And immediately you realize, as Abraham did, that the stakes were high. That the change was inevitable. And it's a small word, go, but it packs a big punch. And as you engage with Scripture, and we highlighted this this morning, you soon discover that it's actually a key characteristic of God's call. So he calls Moses to go to Pharaoh. He calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites. He calls the prophets to go in all sorts of directions to all kinds of different people. Jesus urges the rich young ruler to go and sell his possessions. And before Jesus returns home to his father, he instructs his disciples to go into all the world, to go and make disciples, to go and preach the gospel. And what you discover is that the Christian faith is not a static. It's not a stay where you are. It's not a settle down and get comfortable faith. It's actually a faith that challenges you to go, and not just to go, but to keep going. And Abram finds himself being asked to go from what he knows to the unknown. From the present clarity into a future of genuine and profound ignorance. He had no clue what lay ahead of him. None whatsoever. To go from what he had to what he didn't have. From what is familiar to what is strange. To go from his comfort zone to a place of risk and uncertainty. And I know there is something very appealing about staying where you are. I know I've sort of wrestled with this a lot in my own life, I can assure you. There's something very appealing about staying where you are because it's safe. It's secure there. And yet moving beyond security of where we are is often the path to newness. And it's often in that place that God does new things in our lives. And that was certainly Abram's story. And the question I just want to ask is, where is God asking you to go in 2011? Is he asking you to go deeper into relationship with him? To go further in your commitment to him? Is God asking you this year to go in a new direction? I mean, Abraham found himself at this place called Haran, which means crossroads. And there may be somebody here this evening, and you are in that place. Hearing God's call to go in a new direction. You're standing somewhere but realize that actually it could be that God's trying to get you to go somewhere different. Or what about going the extra mile with someone? Is that that where God's calling you to go? 
To go speak truth into a difficult situation. To go and say sorry to someone. Is that what God's calling you to in 2011? To go and speak to someone you maybe haven't spoken to for quite some time. Maybe God's calling you to go and pray with someone. Go next door. Go overseas. You discern the destination. You discern the specifics. But where is God asking you to go this year? And when it comes to going anywhere with God, you can be sure of two things. And the first is that to go will test us. It will stretch us as it did Abram. Although the thing to remember about testing is that when it involves God, you can be sure that as a result, your faith is going to be strengthened. God doesn't test us just for the sake of testing us. God tests us to draw us on further, deeper. And secondly, to go will force us to a place of dependence. You see, whenever you settle down and stay in one place for too long, you risk getting or becoming self-dependent. You don't necessarily need God when everything's familiar and when everything's settled and when you're comfortable. You can very often just do it alone. You can fly solo. But whenever we go from what we know, from what we've been used to, to somewhere different, then every step of the journey requires a really tangible and definite dependence upon a God. Abram is called to go. But alongside the command, you'll notice, are a whole bunch of promises. And the first is this. I'll make of you a great nation. Now remember, Abram and Sarah have no kids. There's no one to carry on the bloodline. And therefore, the idea of this family becoming a great nation must have sounded ridiculous. Abram 75, and Genesis 11, right at the end, actually confirms that Sarah's barren. So, how is this going to happen? Something extraordinary is going to have to take place. And then God adds more promises. He says, I will, and again these are echoes of this morning, I will make your name great. This is not about you making a name for yourself, as the people did at Babel. This is about me making your name great. And again, as we all know, there's no denying that has happened. The three major religions hold Abraham in high regard. Christianity traces the lineage of Jesus Christ back to him, Matthew 1. Jews identify Abraham as their founding father, and Muslims revere him as a friend of God, a father of the prophets, and an ancestor of Muhammad. Abraham's name is great. And the promises keep coming. I'll bless you. And I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse those who curse you. And five times in the space of two verses, we read the word bless or variations of it, where we discover that God is going to shower his goodness upon Abraham. didn't mean that life was going to be plain sailing, but it did mean that God was for him. And ultimately, all would be well. But notice what some have described as the purpose of all of this. The commands to go, the promise is amazing, but look at the phrase at the end of verse 2. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. You see, it seems that God's blessing is not just something you receive. And this is so important for me. It's something you pass on. 
Something you enact, something you embody, something that overflows from you to others. And I love that idea. I like that picture of Christian faith, that we who have been so blessed by Almighty God. And we sit here tonight as a group of people who have been so blessed by Almighty God. And then when we're aware of that, when we don't take that for granted, then in turn we become a blessing to others. We are blessed to bless a world in pieces. We are loved to love where love is not. We are changed to be the change you promised. We are free to be your hands, O God. Sometimes whenever we think of being blessed, we, we think in material terms. That if we have money or have our health, then God is blessing us. And there may be an element of truth in that. But as we know, it goes so much deeper, so much deeper. The Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And we have received so many spiritual blessings. We have been chosen. Don't understand that entirely. We've been forgiven. Again, just to pick up thoughts that Paul brings out in the first chapter of Ephesians. But the issue we then face is how can we become a blessing to others? This week, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our social context, how can I be a blessing to my neighbors and friends? But blessed by God, but it's not for me. It's so that I can be a blessing. And so God says to Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And in verse 4, Abraham then responds, And he says this, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And that's astonishing for me because surely he had so many questions. So many issues rattling around in his head. And yet there's no record at this stage of any comeback from Abram. Just an account of amazing act of obedience. So Abram went. And for those who have been following this journey, it is echoes of Noah where we read, and Noah did everything just as God commanded. So Abram and his wife Sarah, and you can only imagine what she was thinking, and his nephew Lot packed up all their possessions and went as the Lord had said. And all of this was based on God's word alone without a shred of evidence. And that's the really hard bit. To hear God speak, To read his word and to respond without a shred of evidence of what lies ahead. And so no wonder Abram appears in Hebrews 11. By by faith Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, and this is the bit, even though he did not know where he was going. Abram embraced ignorance and he relinquished control. And that's a massive challenge because it takes radical faith to make decisions to trust God with an unknown future. And the question is, are we up for that? Are we up to trust God with an unknown future? And Abram left and he went. And as a result of Abram leaving and going, human history was altered forever. And those are an amazing first nine verses of of chapter 12. They're real high moments. But what I want to do is just pause there and we're going to sing. And then we're going to pick up the rest of the chapter, which has a really different feel 
first nine verses real high. The next bit are, are quite unbelievable in some ways. One of the, uh, one of the sad and, and yet somewhat encouraging aspects of, of the whole story of the Bible is the discovery that people of faith, people of real, genuine Christian faith, get it wrong occasionally. They lose their way. They make some crazy choices. And we've already seen this in the early parts of this story, but we're about to see it again in the second half of Genesis 12. So let's read from verse 10. We're not going to read it all together, but we're going to, we're going to read it as we go along. So if you have a Bible, it would be really helpful. But verse 10, Now there was famine in the land. And I want you to imagine how, how Abram must have felt at this point. I mean, verse 2, we've already discovered that God says, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. So Abram surely must have been thinking, well, this can't be right. Famine? The prospect of distress, the potential for pain, was probably not on Abraham's mind when he thought of God blessing him. And immediately you're confronted with a key lesson here when it comes to our faith. And this is, for many people, a very bitter pill to swallow. But just because we are in relationship with God and just because we're being obedient to God does not mean that we're exempt from suffering or hardships or difficulties. Nowhere does God promise an easy life. And often it is just when we have been in a great place with God that tough times come. There's lots of examples of this in God's Word. So Elijah had that incredible mountaintop experience in Carmel. Incredible what he saw God do. Real high point in his life. And yet he then faces a major and significant threat which causes him to plummet into a state of deep depression where he wanted to die. And Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism. And the words of his father, the affirming words of his father, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. They're ringing in his ears. And yet he then steps into a wilderness for 40 days and faces intense temptation. And the fact is, the reality is that Christians are not exempt from the really tough stuff of life. The idea that if God blesses you, then you'll somehow breeze through life is a complete nonsense. And it was Charles Swindle who said, the curtain does not fall on life's difficult drama when Christ comes on the stage. And God's blessing was on Abraham, and God's blessing was on Elijah, and God's blessing obviously was on Jesus, but that didn't mean that any of them would have a hassle-free life. And if you are here this evening, and, and you're trying to follow God, and you're trying to be obedient, and yet you're feeling the heat, then don't buy into the lie that God has abandoned you or that there's something necessarily wrong with your faith. Rough times will come. Pain is inevitable. Trials do exist. Temptations are there. Disappointments are common. But here's the issue. It's where you go with those. It's where you go. And this is where Abram messed up. Because he decided to take matters into his own hands. And he went to Egypt before he went to God. There's no sense here of God telling him to go there. And it seems that he didn't think or he wasn't sure that God could sustain him through famine. 
or that God could provide for him and his family despite all the promises. And so Abram, it seems, did his own thing. And it's frightening how often we, how often I mirror that behavior. Do you know, I know lots of God's promises. I've learned them off by heart. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Lord will guide you always. And then the classic Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. And I have heard them and I know them. And yet how often do I head off in other directions rather than turn to God? I turn to self. I turn to worry. turn to panic or some other form of escapism. Or some other coping mechanism. Or how often do I actually blame God for the hassles, the disappointments, and the problems I face? And so I choose, well, I'm going to ignore God from here on in, or certainly for a while. And one of the greatest challenges in life is to learn to trust God all the time. When the going's good, when the going's not. When the sun shines on our faces, and we all feel great, and yet when we're soaked to the skin and we feel rubbish, are we still going to trust God? Are we still going to go to God? And maybe again you're here this evening and you find yourself in a difficult place and you are tempted to take things into your own hand, hands, to do it your own way, to work this out for yourself without reference to your submission to God. Or you're in a situation that requires trust in God but you're tempted to place your trust elsewhere. Please don't. And the reason I say please don't is because what you discover from this story is that Abraham drifts further and further away from God and deeper and deeper into compromise. And in verse 11, Abram says to his wife, I know what a beautiful woman you are. I think as I said last year, it's a great line for every husband to use. And he knows, you see, Abram knows that when the Egyptians see his stunningly beautiful wife, that they will say, she is your wife and so we're going to take her and kill you because apparently that was the way it worked in Egypt at that time that a foreigner in search of food was vulnerable and had no rights and so everything that he possessed was up for possession by the Egyptians and so Abram with total disregard for Sarah's safety Sarah's dignity her protection he opts for deceit he opts to lie to save his own skin. And he says in verse 13 to his wife, say you're my sister. And that way I, and here's the selfishness coming through, that way I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Here was Abram looking out for number one. And what was he thinking? Did he honestly believe that deceit was a legitimate practice for a friend of God? And did he think that God wouldn't notice? And as Abraham Lincoln has said, you can fool some of the people all the time, all of the people some of the time. You cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And the thing is, you cannot fool God any of the time. And then to lie. And I know, as I said last year, I know some of you would come back potentially at me and say, hold on a minute, Sarah was in fact those of you who are familiar with your Bibles will know that Sarah was in fact Abram's half-sister according to Genesis 20 verse 12. So maybe this wasn't a complete lie. And yet she was also his wife. 
And so at the very best, what Abram was doing here, he was being economical with the tree. And according to Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, and one of them is a lying tongue. And Abraham did it. He tried to deceive and he lied. And it does make the point that Christians do the craziest of things, the ungodliest of things, in spite of all they know and all they have been through. And why is it we do that? And why is it that Abram did that? And as the story continues, sure enough, the Egyptians recognize Sarah's beauty. And so they take her to Pharaoh's palace. But they treat Abraham brilliantly. He gets sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, servants. Abraham isn't killed. And in addition, it would seem he becomes filthy rich. And in some ways you could look at that and you could think, well, do you know something? Compromise seems to be working out rather nicely for Abraham. And it does at times. Sometimes you observe someone else's life and you observe compromise and yet it all seems to be coming together for them. And they seem to be doing really well. And yet you're really trying to be obedient to God. And it's hard. And you wonder sometimes... Maybe not taking this obedience thing so seriously isn't such a bad thing. And Abraham must have thought, well, I'm on a winner here. Okay, I've deceived, I've lied, but I'm now rich. And I haven't been killed. But as inevitably happens, the wheels then come off. And verse 17 says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. And Pharaoh hadn't deceived anyone, at least not according to this part of the story. Pharaoh hadn't lied to anyone. And yet he and his household find themselves coming down with some major illness. And it just doesn't doesn't seem fair to me. But isn't it so true that our sins, our poor choices, often have such a huge knock-on effect on those around us? The husband, the wife who commits adultery, tears a family apart. And the pain and the hurt are felt for years. Or the young person who heads off the rails rips his mum's heart out. And sin has this ability to to ripple out and devastate numerous lives. And sometimes it impacts other people far more than it impacts the person who has made the poor choice. And Pharaoh discovers that Sarah is in fact Abram's wife. And so to Abram's shame, Pharaoh rebukes this friend of God rebukes his questionable ethics. And I think it's really interesting how sometimes you discover non-Christians who display far higher and better morals than Christians. And here's the tragedy of this story for me, that Pharaoh lost respect for Abraham, for Sarah, and for God as a result of this man of faith's behavior. And Abraham's testimony shot through. And his potential to influence this particular Pharaoh was gone for good. And as far as this Egyptian was concerned, Abraham's faith couldn't have meant that much to him. Couldn't have been that real if he was willing to compromise to such a level. And so as the chapter ends, it just says that he wanted him out of his presence. He just wanted rid of him. 
And so he packs him and his belongings up and says, go, go. And in a sense, that's how this part of the story ends. And Abraham is sent packing and his head is down and he's disgraced and he's embarrassed. But thankfully, although Abram was sent from Pharaoh's presence, he didn't leave God's. And though he went out of the Pharaoh's sight, he didn't get out of God's sight. And although the Pharaoh turned his back on him, God didn't turn his back on Abram. And therefore the story and our story continues and Roy is going to pick it up next week. And one of the things that I just love about the Bible, and I've said this so many times, and forgive me for repeating it, but is that it doesn't cover up or avoid the failures and the weaknesses of the heroes of the Christian faith. There is no airbrushing. There's no digital enhancing. Everything gets exposed. Abram was a godly man. He was a friend of God. But those people do mess up. They don't always get it right. The Bible doesn't try to convince us that men of God were perfect and somehow immune from making mistakes. Their entire stories are shared. Noah, that righteous blameless man who walked faithfully with his God also got hopelessly drunk and exposed himself in his tent. Moses the rescuer killed a man in cold blood and buried him under a pile of sand. David the man after God's own heart caved into temptation and ended up wrecking numerous lives. And godly men and women don't always get it right. They fail, but failure isn't final from God's perspective. And God called Abraham back despite the fact that he had lost his way. And maybe, as I finish, you are here this morning. Stephen, sorry. And you're not where you should be with God. Or you're not where you want to be with God. Or you're not where you once were with God. And you're aware of compromise in your life. And choices that you're making that are crazy for a Christian. That don't make a lot of sense. That confuse other people. Well, can I stress based on God's word that God hasn't abandoned you. That God calls you back, invites you back and longs for you to run like the prodigal back into his arms. And if you just glance across at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13. You discover that in a sense Abram retraces his steps to where he first built an altar to the Lord that we read about together earlier. And it would seem that Abraham sensed his need for forgiveness, sensed his need to go back to God, to go back for cleansing and renewal. And it says that he calls in the name of the Lord, something that he did at the beginning of chapter 12. And that is our choice this evening. That no matter how much we have got it wrong and messed up and how long we've been away, that you can retrace your steps, re-engage your heart, and reconnect your relationship with God. And we are about to just finish this service with communion. And this is a great opportunity and a perfect place to do exactly those three things. And so for whatever reason this evening, and again, just in the silence, as you examine your own heart and allow God to examine your own heart, 
If you feel that you do need to retrace some steps, you do need to re-engage your heart, you do need to reconnect that relationship with God that you maybe once had, once enjoyed, but for whatever reason, isn't as it should be, then here is the place where we remember God's sacrifice for us. His willingness to lay down the life of His only Son in order that we could be forgiven. And that when we confess our sins, God is just and faithful and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's such a patient God and he doesn't give up on wayward people. And I thank him for that. And so just as we sit in silence for a moment, then we're going to sing a song as a way of saying thank you for the bread and the wine. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? You are my everything. And I will sing your praise.